I've been asked why there was no outline or handout for John 11 and 12, and that's because I have no structural conclusions for those two chapters, and that will happen again. So uh, if there is no handout, that means that I have no uh, confidence that uh, I've perceived the structure that the writer has placed in the text. Now, John 13 to 17 consists in three sections, the foot washing in chapter 13, the so-called farewell discourses in chapters 14 to 16, and the so-called high priestly prayer of Jesus in chapter 17. I've given you a series of proposed outlines uh, from different authors uh, for this section, and I give them to you for your consideration. Uh, I am not endorsing any of the three uh, because I believe each has a problem at one point or another, but I want you to be aware that there are those that have grappled with the overall structure of this unit. Now, there are commentators who argue that the initial farewell discourse, of which there are three, begins at chapter 13, verse 31. I'll not quibble with this assignment, though I am not persuaded of it, primarily because Jesus shifts from 1338 to 14.1. No, he does not shift location, or setting, we are still in the supper room at Jerusalem as we cross over from chapter 13 to chapter 14. Rather, Jesus shifts audience in 14.1. You may note that he was prophesying Peter's denial in 13.38, and the you there is singular. In 14.1, he addresses Pistuta, Adam, Parson. It could be an imperative. It could also be a second person, plural, present active, indicative. And so it's translated both ways. In the King James, it's translated as the imperative, ye believe. Uh, I'm sorry, as the imperative. Indicative, and in the New American Standard, it's uh, translated as you uh, believe you understood with the imperative. The point is that the uh, pistuta is the plural, so he is addressing more than one. In 1338, he is addressing one you. In 14.1, he is addressing many yous, or ye, in the old King James. So he has turned his attention to his disciples. That's the shift that I'm underscoring. The change of focus suggests, in my opinion, a change of subject. The first farewell discourse proper to his, plural, disciples. Now, the 14th chapter possesses an integrity of its own distinct but not separate from its context from the subsequent farewell speeches 
chapter 14 is marked by an inclusio, a dialogue pattern, and the poruomai, erkomai, which is the go-away, come-again symmetry. Now, the inclusio is composed of the words, let not your heart be troubled. You see those words in verse 1 and verse 27 at the opening and close of this chapter. The dialogue pattern consists of a series of statements by one of the disciples followed by a response by Jesus in verse 5, Thomas in verse 8, Philip. Verse 22, Judas, not Iscariot. Why not Iscariot, Adam? Because Judas Iscariot would betray him? Because Judas Iscariot is not in the room. Verse 1330, chapter 1330, he has gone out from the room. For the only Judas left is Judas, not Iscariot, who has been identified traditionally with Thaddeus in the lists of the Twelve. By the Twelve, I mean the nucleus of the new and eschatological Israel of God. In the lists of the Twelve Disciples in Matthew 10, 2-4, and Mark 3, 16-19. The old Sunday school mnemonic ditty calls him Judas the Greater. This is how the disciples run. Peter, Andrew, James, and John, Matthew next, and Thomas too, Philip, and Bartholomew. James the Less and Judas the Greater, Simon the Zealot, and Judas the Traitor. For all you Sunday school devotees. Note how each of the statements of the three disciples is introduced by Kyria. Adam, parsing? It is a vocative. It's a vocative meaning, O Lord, or Lord. The disciples use the dominical title. In Latin, it would be what, Adam? Domina, yes, it would be, O Lord. Jesus responds to the three disciples relationally. Now, by that, I mean each of his replies contains a relational remark about his father. Notice verses 6 and 7 when he's talking back or he's responding to Thomas. Verses 9 to 13, 15 to 16, 20 to 21 when he's responding to Philip a relational remark about his father. Finally, verses 23 to 24, Judas, not Iscariot, a relational comment about his father. Now, the poruomai, erkomai, that is the go-away, come-again pattern, is the pattern of departure and return. Jesus says he is going away, poruomai, verses 2 and 3. Yet he also declares he will come again, Erkomai, verse 3. Now, glance down at verse 21, 28 rather. He repeats his promise that after his departure, Poruomai, he will return, Erkomai. We have demonstrated that Christ's departure, what he's referring to here, is his death by crucifixion. His return is more than his resurrection, as will become clear as the farewell discourses unfold. Christ's poignant return 
encompasses the paraclete, who is the Holy Spirit, and the parousia. What's the parousia, Adam? The second coming of Christ. So Christ's farewell speeches are farewell prophecies. They are prophecies of the overarching history of redemption from his atoning death to the interadventual age of the Spirit to the consummating second advent. Now, when I use this term interadventual, I'm referring to the period between the advents, between the first coming and the second coming of Christ. That is, his birth and his coming again for judgment. And this period is called the inter-adventual era, the era between the advents. Now, those of us with a proper eschatology call us call this the all-millennial era. Jesus is referring to this uh, era in uh, his referring to his coming again. Well, so much for the structure then of chapter 14 uh, on your outline. Uh, if you wish to fill in uh, the uh, answers, you should have on your first uh, pattern the inclusio. Verses 1 and 27, let not your heart be troubled. The second pattern is the dialogue. Thomas said, verse 5. Philip said, verse 8. Judas, not Iscariot, said, verse 22. The third pattern is the interadventual farewell and return. Verses 2 and 3, go away slash come again. They're both there. Verse 28, go away slash come again. They're both there. And the valedictory testament you'll pick up as I continue. Now, chapter 14 is part of a larger genre, a broader type of literature. If the history of redemption is projected by the eschatological prophet Jesus Christ... Here in John 14, it is projected from its foundation in the history of redemption. This chapter, as the unit John 14 to 17, reflects a genre in the history of redemption which is well-defined. As such, that genre or type of literature or type of discourse is represented in the previous history of redemption. In other words... There are retrospective antecedents for John 14 to 17. What am I talking about? I'm talking about the valedictory address. The valedictory address as a well-established biblical theological paradigm. The Old Testament contains three noteworthy farewell discourses. And here's the answer to the lines on your sheet. Those of Jacob, Moses, and Joshua, upon the occasion of their death departure, each of these fathers of Israel gathered the people of God in order to rehearse and anticipate the covenant benedictions. 
Jacob, in Genesis 48 and 49, rehearses the covenant with Abraham and Isaac, as he specifies in Genesis 48, 15, and 16. Genesis 48 and 49 then actualizes the covenant by a declaration of God's presence with his people. In Genesis 48, 21, it is the Emmanuel promise of the covenant. God will be with you. The with you God, Emmanuel, is covenantally identified with his people in the farewell discourse of Jacob. You cannot abstract the God with you promise of the covenant from its Emmanuel eschatological intrusion. It is gracious at the core at every point where it manifests itself in the history of redemption. Now Moses says farewell to Israel on the plains of Moab in Deuteronomy 33. He rehearses God's covenant faithfulness in the Exodus, in the covenant of grace at Sinai, in the passage through the wilderness. Moses actualizes the covenant by declaring God's theophonic presence with his people. As Moses describes in that chapter, God came with 10,000 of his saints, flashing thunderbolts of lightning from Mount Paran, saving his people by cradling them in his everlasting arms. The flashing Saving, cradling God is covenantally remembered as incarnated in the midst of his people in the farewell discourse of Moses. And Joshua. Joshua gathers Israel on the plains of Shechem. In Joshua 23 and 24, his valedictory rehearses the covenantal history of redemption from Abraham to the Exodus to the conquest and settlement of the promised land. Joshua actualizes the covenant by proclaiming that God has given his people rest, rest in the land. The rest-giving, land-granting God covenantally participates with his people in the peace and abundance of the inheritance in the farewell discourse of Joshua. Now, Jesus Christ, son of Jacob, second Moses, Yesu Yeshua, says farewell to the nucleus of the Israel of the age to come. Jesus actualizes the fruition of the covenant by promising his presence, his God with you presence, his Emmanuel presence, his saving presence, his peace presence. This covenantal farewell is the eschatological farewell, the once and for all valedictory in which the new Israel possess the fullness of the covenant. Every testamentary covenant has a testator who blesses into the future. The eschatological testator reveals his eschatological testamentary disposition in John 14 to 17. The blessings of the future 
in Christ's testament, the New Testament, include the inheritance. I go to prepare a place for you, and I will come again and receive you to myself. 14.3 Blessed union and fruition with the Son. I am the vine, you are the branches. 15.5 Peace and rest in Christ Jesus. These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. 16.33 The renewal of the covenant, the death of the covenant testator, the testamentary inheritance, all comes to its accomplishment as the hour of covenant ratification draws near. Now there is another interesting non-biblical document that carries on this genre of testamentary valediction. And it is the famous Testaments of the Twelve Patriarchs, an apocryphal or pseudepigraphical work from the second century B.C., approximately 110 B.C. It comes out of Pharisaic Judaism, and it purports to contain the dying pronouncements of each of the sons of Jacob from Reuben through Benjamin. It is an interesting Jewish extra-biblical reflection upon this testamentary farewell paradigm. It is bizarre in some of its statements, but it nonetheless attempts to carry into the intertestamental period this genre of farewell blessedness. And therefore, what Jesus is doing here not only has some parallel in the Old Testament history of redemption, it also has some parallel in contextual contemporary Judaism. Now, I should mention before closing this discussion of the testamentary farewells, the famous farewell of the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts. As he says goodbye to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, verses 17 to 38, he gives what is, in effect, his own testamentary farewell, for he does not hope to see them again. The approach of this hour for Jesus is troubling. Its nearness has troubled the spirit of Christ himself in 1133, 12:27, 13:21, where the same Greek root is used as that which is used here in 14:1, terasso. But what troubles his spirit is not to trouble their hearts. The troubling is taken by Jesus so that his disciples may be free of troubling. This negative factor associated with Christ's death falls upon him. It is in the presence of death, Lazarus's death tomb, that Jesus is first terasso, troubled, 11.33. But what he has omnipotently displayed in Bethany by way of the resurrection of Lazarus from the dead, what heaven itself has thundered in chapter 12, verse 27, in theophonic echo of Christ's submission to glorification through death, my spirit is troubled, he says, 
what Christ himself experiences as he realizes he is about to be handed over to death, 1321, my spirit is troubled. None of this is to trouble the hearts of his own sons and daughters. He is troubled on their behalf. He enters into the trouble of death for them. He permits cursed trouble to possess him so that he may remove trouble from those he loves and in its place leave peace. Peace instead of trouble. That is the inheritance this testamentary testator has bequeathed unto his own. Union of the heirs of Jesus to their Lord is a union not with trouble. It is a union with a peace unknown to the world. Now the relational category, that is the category in which Christ describes his relationship with his father in these sections, is fundamental to this first farewell discourse, as incidentally it is fundamental to all three of the farewell discourses. There is first and foremost the relational bond between the Father and the Son. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, verse 11. And then there is the relational bond between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, verses 16, 17, and 26. The Spirit paraclete is given by the Father through the request of the Son. The paraclete Spirit is sent by the Father through the name of the Son. The Spirit has a personal existence. You will note that Jesus uses the personal pronoun when he names him, a personal existence predicated in concert with the Father and the Son. In other words, Jesus' revelation of the paraclete is disclosed by way of statements uniting and equating him, that is, the Holy Spirit, with the Father and the Son. It is this language which forms the principium, the foundation of the doctrine of the Trinity. In John 14, the Trinitarian relation is redemptive historical. That is, the Father has sent the Son into the world. The Son, distinct but not separate from the Father, is nevertheless His mirror image. He who has seen me has seen the Father, verse 9. Upon completion of the work the Father has sent him to do, the Son returns to the Father and the Spirit in order to send the Spirit into the world. The Spirit, distinct but not separate from the Father and the Son, notice, another helper, verse 16, proceeds relative to the Father and the Son, whom the Father will send in my name, verse 26. He is sent as the indweller. He will be in you, verse 17. The redemptive historical relation of the triune persons is grounded in the ontological relation of the triune persons. 
The Father does not send unless He Himself is God. The Son does not come as any other than God Himself incarnate. The Holy Spirit does not indwell except by virtue of His divine nature. Participation in this Trinitarian drama is therefore also relational. Now this relation is variously expressed in this chapter by believing or by faith. That's how you are related to this Trinitarian nature. By being received into the dwelling place of the Father, knowing the Son, seeing the Father and the Son, doing the works of God, receiving what has been asked in the Son's name, loving the Son, keeping His commandments, abiding in the Spirit, living through the Son, abiding in the Father and the Son, receiving the peace which is not of this world, rejoicing in the Son. Here is the reality of the covenant without the term covenant. If John's gospel lacks the explicit language of the last supper of the new covenant in Christ's blood, nevertheless, the thing itself is here. Life in the covenant, covenantal relation, new covenant participation, covenant obedience. My point is that no one gospel can exhaust the meaning of Christ's last meal with his disciples. Still, this is common to all four Gospels, union with Christ. The Johannine theology reveals this relational union via an eschatological testamentary farewell. Now, in addition to the relational drama of John 14, there is a semi-eschatological drama in these verses. Indeed, the relational is semi-eschatologically oriented. Gerhardus Voss could not have found his semi-eschatological vocabulary displayed any more accurately than here in John 14. The future overarches the present. The present anticipates, even prophesies, the future in John 14. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, verse 3. The works I do, the one who believes in me shall do also, verse 12. Whatever you ask in my name, I will do, verse 13. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, verse 15. The paraclete abides with you and will be in you, verse 17. Because I live, you shall live also, verse 19. In that day you shall know that I am in you, verse 20. The one who loves me, to him I will disclose myself, verse 21. The future advent of the Son interprets the present departure of the Son. Christ's death contains His second coming. 
the unexpressed yet presupposed resurrection of Christ from the dead is as central to the Johannine as to the Pauline theology. Christ cannot promise to come again in order to receive us to the place where he is gone if death severs him from the future. It is through death and by death that Christ arrives at the future because his resurrection from the dead is the coming of the future into the present. No person in union with Christ can any longer live as if he does not already belong to the place which Christ has prepared for us in his death, resurrection, and parousia. In going to that place of preparation, Christ has brought you already to its mansion rooms. He has done this that where he is already, you too may be already, though he has not yet come again to receive you there consummately. The exclusive prerogative of Christ to be the way, the truth, the life, the no other way to the Father. This exclusive prerogative is verified, ratified, justified, semi-eschatologically. Without the already not yet, without the above penetrating into the below, without the future transforming the present, without the risen Jesus possessing his own in the present, John 14, this gospel, the Jesus of John, is a myth, a romanticist, a philosopher of religion, a conceited megalomaniac. John 14, 6 is semi-eschatological, intrusionary, now not yet reality. It is not myth. It is not pie in the sky. It is concrete reality as union with Christ is itself concrete reality. Jesus is the way already because having come from the Father, he will go to the Father. What he will do, he has done and is doing even now. No longer is it possible to ask, Lord, show us the way. The way has been incarnate. The way has been enfleshed. The way has been lived and worked out here. The way has died and been buried here. But the way has been raised up and gone to heaven from here. Now that way is the only way. For the way of heaven has intruded itself here below once and for all. It beckons us with the life from above, the truth from above, the relation from above, the union with the above, the paraclete from the above. You see, John 14 is more than mere sappy devotional literature. The power of the world to come, the life of the world to come, is revealed retrospectively and intrusionally in this chapter. 
reducing this wonderful text to mere devotional warm fuzzies is to flatten it to the horizontal for the sake of spiritual coping. No. The axis of this place of preparation, the axis of this way, truth, life, the axis of these works, this indwelling, that axis is semi-eschatological. You can no longer come to John 14, nor to any part of this Gospel of John, without the semi-eschatological reality which is revealed here. To do so, to read John's Gospel, without the semi-eschatological access, is to misread John's Gospel. It is to read John's Gospel without the drama and the passion of your own identification and participation in the now, not yet. You cannot leave these lectures un-semi-eschatologically. If you do, you haven't not only failed to understand me, you have failed to understand the Holy Spirit who has inspired these words. This is not flashy rhetoric. This is in the text. With your life drawn into the drama of reality now, with the Christ of glory, even as you walk your pilgrim way upon this earth. The testator's heavenly testament is already now your legacy. It is now your inheritance. It is your, as Van Til would say, your blessed possession. Now, it is from this interface, your blessed possession of the vertical and the horizontal, from the semi-eschatological perspective that verse 12 becomes transparent. As long as commentators try to explain the greater works of verse 12 horizontally, we will be quantifying miraculous signs so as to out-Jesus Jesus. If greater works must exceed the miracles of Jesus, we will always be faced with the charismatic claims to miracles more stupendous than those in the Gospels. Though I wonder why the charismatics don't visit the graveyards and raise the dead. The so-called claims during the Indonesian revival were shown to be spurious when we had those phenomenal reports in 1966 and 67 of the dead being raised in the Indonesian outbreak, all of which affidavits proved that that was specious, overexcited fanaticism. Come on. If Oral Roberts had the power of Jesus Christ, he would walk into a cemetery and say, Come out! You want to do what Jesus does? Then raise the dead! You can't do it because you ain't got it. But if greater works is a phrase expressive of semi-eschatological paradigm, namely the semi-eschatological history of redemption, then any disciple, I want you to underscore that, any disciple of Jesus post-resurrection, post-ascension is a participant in greater things than Jesus did. Any disciple participates already in greater things than Jesus did. Why? Because 
the possession, the participation in the benefits and privileges of Christ's finished work via death, resurrection, and ascension is now poured out from above. From the one who has gone to the Father to pour it down from above. Poured out from above with full justification, full resurrection transformation, full indwelling sanctification, full session at the right hand of the glory on high. That's your position. Greater than anyone who was standing in front of Jesus when he made that statement. Because he hadn't finished his work. This is the work that is being described in that greater work participation. Not some phenomenal, miraculous power to zap this or that. The interface of the vertical and the horizontal the interface of the eschatological and the temporal, has advanced beyond the crucifixion because it's past, beyond the resurrection, because it's past, beyond the ascension, because it's past where the Lord of life sits in his glory state and says, now you share in that greater work. We no longer are united, participate, identified with the work that Christ did on the nether side of his death, resurrection, and ascension. Greater than any pre-passion work Jesus did is the work he is doing in us, through us, post-passion, resurrection, ascension. We are now joined to the death of Christ. He does not have to die anymore. It's over. We are now joined to the resurrection of Christ. He does not have to be raised up anymore. It is over. We are now joined to the ascension place where Christ is seated. He does not have to take up his seat at the right hand anymore. It is over. Our participation, our union with the finished work of Christ, what greater than this? Only heaven itself. Only heaven itself. Please note that causal particle in verse 12. In the Greek, hati. Because Christ goes to the Father. Goes to the Father. The eschatological arena. Because Christ goes greater works than these pre-passion works shall we do. The intrusion of the finished work of Christ exceeds all previous work in the history of redemption. The better, the greater era has come down from above and it suffuses its glory upon the people of God in the end of the age and enlarges and enriches their conception of the whole panoply of the revelation of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now you see why Jesus breaks forth into his doctrine of the paraclete. Beginning with John 14, he goes to the Father after completing his death, resurrection, and ascension. He goes to the house of his Father, to the house of preparation after completing his death, resurrection, and ascension. But now, now post-crucifixion, post-resurrection, post-ascension, now he sends from his Father from his Father's house, from the house being prepared for you. Now, he sends his glorified self by the Spirit 
Now he sends his glorified name by the paraclete. Now he sends his glorified presence by the comforter. And our interface with that spirit paraclete is a rapture. It is a rapture into heavenly places. It is a dwelling out of the life from above. Oh, you are millennialists. You don't believe in any rapture. Oh, yes, we do. We've been raptured into the heavenly places already in Christ Jesus. John 14:12 is not a matter of quantification. It is a matter of participation. It is a matter of union with the glorified Christ by the indwelling of the Spirit, the Spirit who brings the Father and His Son down to abide with us even as He draws us up to the life of the Son and His Father in the heavenly places above. It is in the light of this vertical horizontal interface that our Lord's words about love for him and the keeping of his commandments become passionate. The eschatologization of love for Christ passes over into the eschatologization of the keeping of his commandments. Love of Christ in semi-eschatological orientation and keeping the commandments of Christ in semi-eschatological orientation are now a gift from above, here below. Notice that love is oriented to the arena of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. Love which arises from the arena of the Godhead is poured down upon the hearts of those in union with that arena. The love of God, then, is an eschatological gift from above. You cannot talk of the love of God in merely horizontal terms. The horizontal manifestation of the love of God is suffused with the love, the eschatological love of heaven itself. Jesus goes to unite us with, to pour us into the love of heaven itself, the love of the Father for his Son by his Spirit. Love vertically intruded is horizontally manifested. It is the same with keeping Christ's commandments. More than a mere horizontal barometer of love for Christ, commandment keeping has been reoriented since the death, resurrection, and ascension of the Son of God. The word of Christ is the word he continues to speak by the paraclete power of the Holy Spirit. He speaks this word from the eschatological arena into which he has entered, and he speaks that word into the minds and hearts of his loved ones. They are now united with, indwelt by, abiding in that word semi-eschatologically. Keeping his commandments is heaven-oriented, heaven-motivated, heaven-intruded. The words and commandments of Christ are possessed by the believer as though he were hearing them from the heavenly throne of God himself. How can I live my life outside of the commandments of my Savior? It would be to live my life outside of the arena of heaven. 
my obedience to Christ, like my love of Christ, has been semi-eschatologically transformed. I love Him because He has transformed me into the arena of His love. I keep His commandments because in His heavenly arena, all His commandments are kept. The finished, completed work of the heavenly Christ has penetrated my being. Heavenly love has made my love heavenly, in part. Heavenly commandments have made my commandment keeping heavenly, in part. The semi-eschatological interface has transformed my love, my obedience, my faith. Indeed, my heart need not be troubled. Now, the matter of Christ's commandments in verse 15 and verse 21 or Christ's words in verse 23 and 24 are both theologically and redemptive historically related. You will notice the Trinity and the commandments in verses 14 to 16. That is, the commandments of Christ are the commandments of the Father and the commandments of the Paraclete or Holy Spirit Helper. Christ's commandments are a demonstration of the theological character of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. These commandments, as they reflect the character of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, are also redemptive historically revealed. Here, in the fullness of time, John 14, the Son of God recapitulates the commandments of God His Father and their revelation through the Holy Spirit down through the history of redemption. The commandments have an origin in God Himself. They come from God's own character, from God's own arena. They come from heaven. In other words, these commandments specified by Christ as those you will keep, verse 15, are those which mirror the arena kept for eternity. That is, the eschatological arena of the eschatological giver of the commandments. Christ is but the latest confirmer of these heavenly or eschatological commandments this heavenly or eschatological law. What Jesus declares is anchored in God's own eschatological moral character. That is, the eschatological commandments are mirrors of the eschatological person. The eschatological law is the mirror of the eschatological law-giving trinity. Heaven is a place where these commandments are kept because heaven is a place where the perfect moral expression of these precepts is present forever. The triune God reveals this heavenly eschatological place with its heavenly eschatological Godhead with its heavenly eschatological moral perfection in its heavenly eschatological precepts. In that eschatological heavenly arena, there are no other gods but the Lord God Almighty, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
The eschatological heavenly law reflects the eschatological heavenly uniqueness and soul devotion to the eschatological heavenly triune person. In that eschatological heavenly arena, there are no images of that God because God is an eschatological heavenly spirit and cannot be reduced to the level of the creation. The eschatological law reflects the eschatological worship of the eschatological heavenly person in his eschatological heavenly arena. In that eschatological heavenly dwelling place, there are no curses, profanations, vain uses of the eschatological and heavenly name of the eschatological and heavenly person. For God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit is loved and adored in that eschatological and heavenly arena. His name is holy, undefiled, and precious on the lips of the eschatological and heavenly citizens. In that eschatological heavenly arena, there is a Sabbath of eschatological heavenly rest to all the eschatological heavenly spirits of the blessed. In this eschatological heavenly arena, set apart from every ordinary and secular calling, the everlasting and extraordinary calling of the elect and peculiar eschatological and heavenly people is enjoyed forever and ever. And that eschatological and heavenly Sabbath enfolds the eschatological and heavenly Sabbath keepers of this present age into itself, their weekly Sabbath is an eschatological and heavenly rejoicing in the eternal Sabbath mirrored in Christ's commandment, which is the commandment of his Father by the help of the Holy Spirit. In that eschatological heavenly arena, there is no dishonor to the fathers and mothers of that eschatological and heavenly place. The Son of God honors his Father. It is his eschatological and heavenly imperative. It is his long, yea, never-ending delight to do his eschatological and heavenly Father's will. Oh, how the eschatological sons and daughters of the eschatological and heavenly Son of the Father love to honor him and his Father and his helper, Paraclete. In that eschatological heavenly arena, there is no murder. No God-playing destruction of God's eschatological and heavenly image in man or woman or child or fetus or embryo. For this eschatological and heavenly arena is an everlasting arena of life as God triune is life. No willful murderous death in this eschatological heavenly place. In that eschatological heavenly arena, there is no adulterous intimacy. For this eschatological heavenly arena is a sublime ecstasy of intimate union between the eschatological heavenly bride and her eschatological heavenly bridegroom. No adulterated love exists in that eschatological heavenly marriage room. In that eschatological heavenly arena, there is no robbery for all in that arena is eschatological and heavenly gift. In that place, no thing given by the eschatological heavenly trinity displaces them as an object of passion or possession. All in that eschatological heavenly domain belongs to the eschatological heavenly Lord, and his loving servants are content, eschatologically content with the heavenly Lord and his heavenly domain. It is enough for them.
In that eschatological heavenly arena, there is no deceit, no unheavenly misrepresentation of the truth. For the eschatologically heavenly triune persons of that arena are the very indicative and the imperative of truth. And their eschatological heavenly servants love the truth, speaking the truth in love as they will speak it perfectly in that eschatological heavenly arena forever and ever. In that eschatological heavenly arena, there is no desire of the heart for any other than the Lord God and his eschatological heavenly glory. Inner and outer longings are eschatological and heavenly for the lovers of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Desire, yea, covet him alone, him alone and his glory, and none else, none else. These are the eschatological heavenly commandments of Christ. In keeping these, we are conformed more and more to the eschatological heavenly arena of our eschatological heavenly Lord. Love for Him, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, is love for His arena, for His moral character, for His moral character mirrored in His commandments. His law is Decalogue. For His commandments, His law, His Decalogue are His gracious loving display of his wonderful moral nature to which he graciously eschatologically summons us as the sons and daughters of heaven. If we hear voices saying the Decalogue is not binding upon Christians or that the Ten Commandments are no longer a rule of life to the Christian, we grieve that such statements contradict the eschatological heavenly character of God, his ethical nature, as reflected in his wonderful commandments given to us to draw us into that eschatological heavenly arena. Such statements contradict the words of our Lord Jesus in John 14, and they must therefore be rejected. I will take any questions you may have for five minutes or so, and then we'll take our break. If you have any questions... Take your break.